0: welcome to 2014 this is uh, this is exciting for me to be able to be the guy who gives the first sermon of 2014 the first sermon of the year can't guarantee it'll be the best sermon of the year but I can guarantee it'll be the first you can take that to the bank um, Ricardo he gave me the freedom to choose a topic that I thought would serve the congregation Uh, for this sermon, we're going to be picking up in our Romans series in a few weeks. But I thought, as many of us are thinking about resolutions, about goals, about all these plans for 2014, it would be good to talk about calling. Now let me just ask by a show of hands, who has made some plans or goals or resolutions for 2014? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right. A quasi-ambitious bunch here. Um, So that's good. When we're making these goals, often underlying these goals is a sense of who we are and how God has made us. And I know this time of year, it's common to ask, what has God put me on this earth to do? What has he called me to do? What has he created me for? And so I thought today it would be a good idea for us to reflect on that through Scripture. Uh, To start off, I thought it would be fair to kind of share with you a little bit of my story and how I've worked out calling. Uh, I'm 31 years old. Even though I look like I'm 51 years old, I am 31 years old. I'm aging like Benjamin Button, apparently. Uh, But um, I have uh, worked out a lot of what I think God has called me to, There's still a lot that I have to learn, but there's one thing I am absolutely sure of, what I am not called to, and that is youth ministry. Standing before you today is the world's worst youth ministry guy the world has ever seen. I am the worst. When I became a new believer, I was a a fairly young believer, I was about 17, 18 years old, And most of the godly people that I had met were actually youth leaders. And so I thought, God, are you calling me to be a youth leader? Is this something that you want me to do? So I tried it out. I was a volunteer for the junior high ministry. And it started out well. Uh, The first day that we were on the bus headed to uh, our winter camp. I was a volunteer. I was going to lead a cabin full of guys, and I had this genius idea that, hey, maybe I should get all these junior hires together and set up a little wrestling tournament. <laughs> not, not a smart idea. There was this guy. I called him Schmeez Dog. His last name was Schmeezing or something like that, and Schmeez Dog was amped up to get in this wrestling tournament, and Schmeez Dog, he, uh, he hurt his shoulder. And he was kind of crying about it, and I kind of told him, hey, man, stop crying. Get out there and wrestle again, (laughs) trying to teach some sort of lesson. He went out there and wrestled some more and didn't go well for him. Uh, So he came back, and we were trying to stretch out his shoulder a little bit. It was in pain. We even, there was another guy who was on staff with me who heard that you could, like, pop someone's shoulder back into place. So we tried that a little bit. It didn't work. It didn't work at all. Why didn't it work? Because he had a broken clavicle, straight through. (laughs) World's worst youth leader. It was on that same trip that I let these junior high guys hide licorice all over the camp so as to attract bears, because we wanted to see some bears. Uh, So, and, and these moments I'm sharing with you, these are my good moments as a youth leader. Uh, I was also the guy who thought it would be good to have them read uh, thousands of pages of systematic theology. I think they were going to try to kill me in my sleep at that camp. So I'm not a youth leader. Uh, But over the years, I've had a chance to kind of discern the way that God has made me, he's gifted me, and the things that he's called me into. I was about 18 or 19 years old, and I really started to see God's heart for the nation's. that that God wanted his good and beautiful gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And so I started something called the Moravian Community. The Moravian Community was a group of ordinary people, started out with about 20 of us, who moved into the international student neighborhood near ASU, we shared the gospel with people, we prayed a lot, we lived in these communities, and the group grew to be about 100 people. And we had this goal of one day going overseas together uh, on teams and blessing the nations. And we actually did, about 20 of us ended up going overseas, uh, many to Turkey, some to the United Arab Emirates, some to India. My wife and I, we led um, a team to Turkey. Uh, the, the country, not the, not the meat that I like to hold up on stage, but the, the country. And so we lived in Turkey for a couple years, and when, it was in, when we were in Turkey, I began to really sense, man, God has made me to do some particular things. And that is to start and launch new sort of ministries to, uh, for mission. Um, while we were in Turkey, I started a couple of organizations that focused on Christian-Muslim relations. I started a basketball scouting company. I started a Turkish art exporting company. Uh, That one actually failed pretty badly, but most of them uh, did pretty well and created an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus and uh, to bless others. And then I came back to America eventually and worked with Redemption Church with community and global initiatives And it was a real delight for me to be able to come back to Tempe and to be in a role here at the church where I can do a lot of things to initiate and spark new types of ministry to bless and seek the flourishing of the city. And through all that, I had a real sense that God had kind of shaped me to be someone who starts things. And as 2014 kind of rolled around and I was taking stock of the last year and making some goals it, was, it really brought a lot of clarity to my goals to reflect on how God made me and perhaps what he was calling me to. And so that's what I wanna do with us today. I want us to open the scripture, I want us to talk about how has God made us and what has he called us to. So we're gonna start off in Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will walk down the aisle and give you a Bible. If you do have a Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Let me, go ahead and, um, let me go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet. And we pray that you would guide us by your word, that you would be our good shepherd that you would give us insight today into how you have made us and that you would even give us greater insight into who you have made us for. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting with Romans 12. I chose Romans 12 as the passage that we're gonna anchor ourselves in because Romans 12 is really the the part of the book of Romans where Paul is transitioning and talking about how do we tangibly respond to this amazing gospel that we've come to know. Throughout the book of Romans, you see Paul masterfully uh, articulating the gospel, who Jesus is and the importance of his work, the importance of the cross and how it paid for our sins and the importance of the resurrection and how Jesus has conquered death, how he's the firstfruits of this new creation, and how all, all of creation is longing for the, the great and ultimate redemption. We're talk, the, the book talks about how we can't be separated from this incredible love that God has demonstrated through his son. And by the time we get to chapter 12, it's time for Paul to say, here's what this means for your life. Here's what you're called to. So with that in mind, let's read Romans 12, verse one and two. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is the good and acceptable and perfect? Now when we look at this, the first thing that we see is that it is by God's mercy in the gospel that we are able to come to worship. And our first aspect of our response to the gospel is to be worshipers. The first thing we are called to is we are called to God. That our lives are a living sacrifice, objects that are used for worship, that worship God, that are a fragrance to him, to be consumed in the, in the in lives that worship him. It's a response to his mercy. Our minds are to be daily renewed in his truth so that we are shaped more and more into the image of Christ and not conformed and shaped by the world. But as these minds are shaped, they affect our hands. If you read on in Romans 12, verses three through eight, Paul begins to focus on the various callings within the community. He talks about how many of us, how we are, how we are a, a body with many parts. Some of us were given the gift to teach and some were given the gift of mercy. But all of these gifts work together as a, as a body, as a group of people who do tangible things, who are made to do specific things to worship God by blessing others. And we see Paul continues on this outward focused look in Romans 12, nine through 21, as he gives a list of commands that create a provocative and stunning vision of community. A community that loves one another and forgives one another and even loves enemies and it's a countercultural community that the world must look at and say that is unique and distinct. And it's from this passage, really this chapter, that I want to take the logic of this sermon. The logic of this sermon is that in response to the gospel we have two two calls. We are called to two things. First and foremost, we are called to God, to love him, to worship him, to be in relationship with him. And second, we are called to God's world to do some pretty specific and distinct things based on how he has created us. We are called to God and we are called to his world. So let's start with number one. We are called to God. When we think about calling, it is easy to overlook our primary calling, that central calling that is put forth in scripture and that we are called to God. So often we skip the question of who we are called to and we move into the question of what are we called to do? We begin to ask the question, what is the purpose of my life? How should I spend my time? What was I made to do? And those are all important questions but they must be anchored down by a more important question, and that is, who are you called to? So often, when we are looking for calling, when we're looking for what the purpose of our life is, what we're really looking for is some centerpiece of our life, some central thing that is going to give us wholeness, that's going to give us satisfaction. We're looking for something awesome that we can devote our lives to. So often, when we are looking for calling, what we're really looking for is God. Because scripture makes it clear that there is only one, one thing that can absolutely fill fill the void of our souls, that our souls are longing for, and that is to be known by God and to know God, to love him and to be loved by him. It's the most exhilarating, beautiful, unique calling that anyone could be called to. It's weighty and significant. But so often, we brush past that and look for other things to be the center of our life, to give us meaning. We're a dissatisfied people, we really are. We move from thing to thing to thing in search of something big enough to capture our attention and worth being devoted to. Just go to ASU right now. If you go to ASU and you find a student, any student, that student, more than likely, will have either just changed their major or is just about to change their major we move from major to major to major because we are looking for something that is weighty that's significant that we can throw our lives into so we move from engineering to sociology to nonprofit management and we never find that truly satisfying thing career is the same same way uh, a lot of experts uh, have done research on the millennials who are people in their 20s and 30s right now and they say that 90% of millennials don't expect to stay in their current job for more than three years or any job more than three years. We, this is us. We move from job to job to job looking for some significance, something worthy of devoting our life to. We also see this with spouses and marriages and relationships. Over half of all mar- marriages end in divorce. A lot of people skip the marriage part and they just move from boyfriend to girlfriend and boyfriend and girlfriend looking for something to complete them, that centerpiece, that missing puzzle piece of their life to make everything fit. We even do this with locations. Uh, Tempe can be a fairly tr- uh, transient place. People move in and they move out. And when we, we tend to be a people that look at a map as as people who are looking for God. We're looking for a place to go live, a place that will be a good enough place that will, will capture our attention and will, will, will make us fit in this world. And really what we're doing in all those things, those are, those are all good questions. Where should you live? What should your career be? What should you study? Who should you be with? Those are all good things but they are not the ultimate thing. And until we answer the question of who we are called to, we will not be able to answer the question of what are we called to. We will float around aimlessly because we have no anchor. We, the gospel is our anchor, and the God, our God is the who of who we're called to. Jesus says this. When asked what the greatest commandment is, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, With all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus is saying that the highest purpose of life, the greatest thing to be devoted to is the love and the worship of God. Our emotions belong to the worship of him. Our joy is a delight in him and a delight in the world he created with gratitude we weep over the things that make him weep. We hope in nothing else but him as our savior. Our emotions are instruments of worship to him. Our mind, God has given us a great mind. A Minds that can do very creative things and then very linear things. He's given us a mind of reason, a mind of creativity, and a, a mind that's able to synthesize those things. And our minds can be fixed on no greater thing than reflecting on who God is, and using our minds to worship him. Now that may look like wrestling with a theological concept, and thinking and meditating on who God is. But it also may look like reading a good book on economics with the understanding that the God who's sovereign over all history is the God behind economics. And we love God with our actions. We take our physical hands, our our physical feet. We do physical things with our bodies that are these these spiritual disciplines that shape our hearts and our minds to be greater lovers of Christ and lovers of others. The greatest thing, our central calling, our true joy, our satisfaction is when we get the who right. Who we are called to. We are called to God. And once we get that right of the who, then we can move on to the what. Let me, let me tell you an illustration of this. Michael Jordan. If there's anyone who figured out what they were made to do, what they are good at, it was Michael Jordan. Probably not gonna disagree with that. He was good at his job, right? Now, Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player ever to live. You may argue, you may say LeBron James, or Larry Bird, or Magic Johnson. You'd be wrong, but I'm gonna let you have that opinion. (laughs) But Michael Jordan, the best basketball player ever. He won uh, six championships, multiple MVPs. He was the leading scorer uh, of the league many years. He always hit that winning shot to win, to, to put the game into overtime or to win the game. He was amazing. And I used to love watching him. If there was anyone who ever figured out what they were made to do and who was good at their job, it was Michael Jordan. If anyone could have been satisfied in what they accomplished, it should be him. But a few years ago, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And his Hall of Fame speech is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. You see, a man who's lost, who's dejected, who's not satisfied. He took his Hall of Fame speech and, and gloated in himself and brought up old bitter conflicts. And as I've read more and more about Michael Jordan and what he's doing in, in his post-basketball career years, you can see a man who got the what right, but he did not get the who right. He made an idol out of basketball, and basketball doesn't last forever, and he's lost and dissatisfied. But if you were to watch the Hall of Fame speeches from that same year, you'd see a guy by the name of David Robinson. David Robinson was one of the top 50 basketball players uh, in the history of the NBA. He was a great player, he won championships, he went to the All-Star game, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He wasn't as good as uh, Michael Jordan, but he figured out what his what was as well. He was really good at basketball. And here you have two men who got it right when they figured out what they were supposed to do. They were both really good basketball players. But if you watch David Robinson's speech, you'll see a different person. You'll see a man who's humble, who's joyful, who's grateful. He spends his entire time not talking about himself, but thanking others and thanking God. See, this is a man who's a whole person because he got the who right first. This is a man who's known for loving and worshiping God. And when basketball moved on, he did not lose his sense of self because his life was fixed on Christ, anchored in the gospel, and he knew his ultimate calling, was to love and to worship God. So as we move into 2014, we make a lot of goals. Financial goals, family goals, career goals, physical goals, Um, and what I want to encourage us to do is to also take some time to plan out how we're gonna deepen our relationship with God. You might think that that's legalistic, but it's not. Any relationship that's valuable to us, we make time for it. A good friend, a girlfriend, a spouse, you make time if you care for that that person. And for 2014, I want to encourage you to carve out some time and make a plan for how you're going to read the Bible and how you're going to spend time in prayer. Getting really tangible, here's some ideas of some things that you can do. You can do the one year Bible. A lot of times people will try to read through the Bible in a year. I've done that before. It's great. Uh, Most people get stuck on Leviticus and then they just give up. So I want to encourage you, push through Leviticus. You'll you'll make it. It's a good book. We really like the Bible around here. So push through Leviticus. Um, Another thing you can do is you can uh, read one, uh, one book a month, one book of the Bible per month. That's what I like to do, and I try to study that book. So I'll, I'll make an outline, I'll make observations for each passage, I'll write them in my journal, and then I'll, I'll write down questions about what I don't understand about the text. And then I'll look up other scriptures to try to answer those questions, and then um, I'll look to commentaries if I can't get it uh, from, from the surrounding scriptures there. And then finally, I'll just kind of journal and reflect on how that verse should shape me. Um, Maybe some of you are not readers, and you're more of an auditory learner. Some of the most godly people I know are not readers, and I would encourage you to go ahead and get an audio Bible and listen to God's Word. Listen to it as you go running. Uh, Listen to it in the morning. Let God's Word just sink into your heart and shape you through your ears. Um, Andy Carrillo, he's a guy who's in the elder candidate process here. He's a wonderful guy, a godly guy, someone I've known a lot of years, and something that he told me a long time ago that, that he does that I really liked is he said he reads through the Bible, or he reads through a book of the Bible 50 times through. If he's going to study a book, he, he stays with that book until he's read it through 50 times, and usually by the time he's read it that many times, he really has an understanding of what that book is trying to get at. Now, God has made us individually in different ways We're, we have different learning styles we have different times of the day that we really thrive but I would encourage you to be very intentional and think about how you're going to get into the word also take some time to reflect on how are you going to to cultivate a life of prayer I find that many people are bored with their prayer life because they have very little imagination when it comes to prayer uh, that we We often imagine that all prayer times have to be us in a room by ourselves, hands folded, eyes closed, no peeking, speaking in King James language or something like that. But prayer is much more dynamic and rich than that. We see all throughout scripture that there are multiple places and multiple postures and times that are devoted to prayer and that typically engage Uh, a lot of our senses, our sense of smell, our hearing, our our, our sense of vision. And so just a few examples of what some people do. Um, I've been hanging out with a couple guys this week who go on prayer walks, uh, which has been very helpful to me because I'm like the poster child for ADD, and I need to move around a little bit. And so we go on these prayer walks, and as you pass different things, having those things be symbolic of things you should pray for. For example, if you go by the, the garbage can, that's a good time to confess sin and to pray. As you smell how nasty that garbage is and you get the stench in your nose and it reminds you of how sin is, It can be so nasty. Um, uh, something I do is I've turned my front yard into a prayer garden where different aspects of the garden are symbolic of different types of things I could pray for. Uh, for example, I've got a fig tree and whenever I walk past the fig tree, I, I go back to Genesis three, where you have the Adam and Eve hiding from each other and hiding from God and, and covering themselves with fig leaves. And I just spend time when I'm at that fig tree thanking God that he's taken care of the curse in Christ and that I no longer have to hide from God and hide from others. These, these are different things you can do. You can start a journal and, and write out your prayers. You can, um, uh, another thing is if you're more of a linear, more organized person, get three by five cards and have different things that you pray for on those three by five cards and move through those. However you do it, there's freedom to figure out how you do it, but I would just say be intentional and if you need help sorting some of that out and planning some of that, talk to me. So when we think about 2014, know this, that our first calling, our most central calling is to God to love him, to be loved by him, to reflect on him. So as you're making your plans, plan some deep times to connect with God. Which brings to the second, us to the second point, that we are called to God's world. We are called to God's world. Every square inch of this world belongs to God and is filled with meaning and purpose. We are called to enjoy to work within, to cultivate, to draw the potential out of this world. God didn't just put us here to do a few Bible studies and wait till He comes back, but He created us for some specific purposes to flourish within this world. The Bible says in, in Psalm 24:1, "The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof." Every aspect of this world belongs to God, and he is sending his believers into those places to draw the potential out of it. It's a wonderful world, and he gave us a general call for humanity to work within his creation, to reflect, as it says in Genesis 1 and 2, to reflect his image to the world through the way that we do things. So some examples of this would be, maybe you're a financial advisor, and you dispense solid wisdom. Well, in doing that, you are reflecting the wisdom of God. Maybe you're an engineer with an incredible knowledge of physics. Well, in doing that, you're reflecting the knowledge of God. Maybe you're a teacher who displays a lot of creativity in the way you you teach algebra and you somehow make that interesting. You're reflecting the creativity of God in that. Or an administrative assistant who brings order to an office reflecting the God of order. We get this opportunity to reflect God's image in this world. But you might be asking the question, you might be saying, I get it Jim, all of life is all for Jesus. But I can't do all of life, I can't do everything. I can't be a mayor, a teacher, a janitor, a mom, a, a best friend, a boy scout leader, uh, a volunteer at Imagine schools. I can't do everything. How do I sort out what I am supposed to do? And I think that that is a good question because it implies that we are, we are limited. We're finite, that we can't do everything and that we need to devote ourselves to certain things. And I believe what the scripture teaches is that we were created by a, in a particular way by God, that he created us for particular types of good works that we ought to devote our lives to. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Read that with me. It says, I'll, I'll start with verse 8 and 9. It says, for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've heard these verses quite a bit. We've heard them and heard them and heard them because we are good Bible-believing people, and we believe what it says, that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by the work of Christ, that it is his grace that saves us, and we access it through faith and not by the stuff that we do. But verse 10 Verse 10 rarely gets included with these verses. It gets kicked out, but it's such a good verse. We should keep it in. Somewhere along the Reformation, we started clipping this verse out. But no, we've got to keep this in because this has profound implications for our life. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this is huge because what it is saying is very clearly that we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We are saved to do specific things God created us for. We are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the word poema. It's the the word that we get our English word poem from. And can you see how beautiful this is? This is saying that we are God's poetry. And each of us is almost like a sentence that God has carefully crafted to say a specific thing. Or, or something that, like a carpenter, God has shaped to do a specific thing. We, God carefully crafted our personalities, our passions, our experiences, to equip us for a particular works. He wasn't sloppy. He had intention when he made you. And he has some stuff for you to do. And so, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about calling. Of really discerning how has God made me and what are the types of things that I should be devoting my time to. So I want to give you six things that you can reflect on as you think about calling that can help you kind of understand what your calling is. Number one, Know that there are diverse types of callings and that you are not called to everything. The Bible has a lot of things that it talks about of potential ways that we could be called, potential types of callings. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Some people are called to to the powerful, to move to the places of power. Other people are called to the powerless, to serve those who are in pain and who are hurting. God calls some people by location. He gives you a burden for a particular place like China or Turkey or Tempe to go to that place. And sometimes God gives us a calling of a particular vocation, a type of thing that we should be doing, a type of work, maybe as an accountant or a pastor or a teacher. So those four things called to the powerful, called to the powerless called a locations, called a vocations. Let me walk through those and talk about what they might look like. Those are gonna look different for each of us and we might emphasize certain ones of those. Some of us might emphasize a call to the powerful. We see this in scripture. Moses was called to lead Israel out of the captivity of Egypt and to challenge the injustice of Pharaoh to lead God's people out of Egypt. He was called to a place of power. And some of us will be called to places of power, of to, be, to work with the city council or to be a CEO of the company. Or maybe you've inherited a lot of wealth. That's all power. And a lot of times it's easy for Christians to be bashful about that and almost look at that as evil or be opportunistic about it and say, ah, now we're going to really gain some ground because we got some Christians with money. It's not that at all. What this is, is this is a call to steward power on behalf of others to promote justice and flourishing. Power is not a bad thing as long as it is used to build the kingdom of God, to serve others, to see them flourish, to pursue justice, and not to build your own kingdom. If you are one of those people who are called to places of power, you might want to reflect on William Wilberforce. This guy was an amazing guy. He was a a powerful person. He had wealth. He had education. Um, He was a British parliament member. He was a brilliant man. But he knew that God had put him in that place of power for a particular reason. And he had this burden to eradicate the slave trade in Great Britain. And at a great cost to himself, he poured his life out to that. And so sometimes God calls people to those places of power to pursue justice and human flourishing. The, there's also a call to the powerless. Oftentimes we get the precious opportunity to follow Jesus to the, the places where there's pain and sickness and, and where, where people are ignored and where people may not have uh, money, where there might be poverty, and we get to walk with those people, and, and God calls us into the places of powerlessness. We see this in Acts 6. The apostles couldn't keep up with the daily distribution of food that the church was doing, and so they appointed six guys who were filled with the Spirit, who were wise, and who really loved God, and they said, these will be the six people who will take care of the, the, the food distribution to the poor, especially to the widows. And these were people who were called to care for the Greek widows of that time, who didn't have much power. They couldn't get food on their own. Their husbands had died. They needed to take care of their children. But because of their Greek ethnic identity, they had the potential of being overlooked. And a lot of people say that these were the first deacons, these people who were called to serve the powerless and to reflect the self-giving, generous love of Christ in that. One of my favorite people who embodies this is a guy by the name of Jean Vanier. He is um, he's a man who's, a, he's an educated man. He could have gone on and, and been a professor, but what he decided to do is he had a decent sized house, and he noticed that in our world, we tend to push those with, with mental disabilities and learning disabilities to the side, to push them outside of, of society, and push them outside of community. And so what he did, he said, no, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to create a home where they can come live with me and we can be in community together. We can break bread together. I'm not just going to provide services for them, but I will be their brother and their sister and we will live together. And so uh, sometimes God calls us to be like that. Maybe to to work in a nursing home or to serve refugees at imagine schools down the road or to teach in a low-income area or to, uh, to walk with those who are sick and maybe visit those who are, who are dying. We get to follow Jesus into the places of powerlessness. But sometimes God calls us by location. We see in Jeremiah 29 that God calls, uh, he calls his people, he calls all of uh, Israel into exile to go to Babylon, this pagan city, and God calls them to love that city to seek its flourishing, to seek its welfare, and uh, to love Babylon. And, and sometimes we see uh, God calling people to particular locations far away. The Apostle Paul was called to go to the Gentiles, to go to the people, to the places where the gospel had not been preached yet. And so some of you might actually be more motivated by where God is calling you. And you have a particular place, a particular maybe part of town or a city like Tempe or maybe China as we're building relationships with China and you just have this burden for it and maybe God is giving you a burden for a particular place. And finally, vocation. Sometimes God calls us vocationally where it becomes pretty evident that we were made to do a particular type of work. Joseph in the Bible was raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt to bring about God's purposes. Nehemiah is a guy who rebuilt the temple. And we even see the Holy Spirit giving people, um, empowering artists to make the, the tabernacle. And you may feel a real sense that God is calling you to a particular type of work. Maybe not to a particular job, but to maybe to work with your hands and build things, or to be an accountant. There's a guy uh, who goes to Redemption Gilbert by the name of Aaron Kluzman. In Christianity Today did an article about him. He is a guy who is a wise, godly business guy, and he feels called to business. He starts these yogurt, these frozen yogurt shops all over the city, and he's really good at it too. And when we think about calling, we often don't think about God coming down and saying, you, my servant, will start frozen yogurt shops. But let me tell you, man, God has called this guy, and it is cool. I'll just read you a little quote from the article. It says, Kluzman works hard to turn a profit as success in business requires. But the dividends extend beyond his investors. As he sees it, thriving businesses are instrumental to the flourishing of any vibrant city, and Phoenix is no exception. If you're going to talk about the well-being of the city, the reality is that you have to understand economics, he says. A city flourishes as its economic engine thrives. He sees his role to serve and love his neighbors by providing jobs for those neighbors. And if you've ever been unemployed and are trying to find work, this is the kind of guy who loves you and loves his neighbor. Now we see all of these, voc- these types of callings, they're all good, but it's really important that we don't have calling confusion. Calling confusion is when we take one of those types of callings and we think that it's the most important one in the Bible. Maybe the calling to serve the poor, or the calling to go to the ends of the earth and, and do missions overseas. Or maybe the calling to figure out what your particular vocation is. All of those are good in the Bible, but a lot of missions organizations or churches, oftentimes trying to raise money, will, will say this is the most important thing. Poverty, there's however many verses about poverty, so you have to care about that. Quit your job, give us some money, and go work on that thing. Now, it's important. They're doing good work, and it's biblical work. But I've seen a lot of people who will hear a good sermon like that, hear a good message, and then they'll go quit their job, and they'll do something that they were never meant to do. There's a guy I know who came to me uh, about a year or two ago who really wanted to help and serve the city in some way. And, and he said, should I teach some English classes? Maybe I should work with the refugees. Now, this guy was not a dynamic teacher. But what he was, I asked him, I said, what are you doing for, for a living? What's your job? And he says, well, I'm working on, I'm, I'm engineering, I'm, I'm working on this thing that helps detect and, and address cancer. And I said, and you wanna know how to serve your neighbor and you're, you're figuring out how to like, Cure cancer, why don't you just focus on that and leave the English classes to us? Like, you're good to go. But it's very easy to get calling confusion uh, when we hear people emphasizing one over the other. We have to feel the freedom and say, all of these things are legitimate callings. The next point is we find, uh, to find the place where your passion and skills overlap with the world's needs. Friedrich Buechner says, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. If you really want to know how God called you, how he made you, what you should be spending your time on, let me give you a few questions you should ask yourself. You should ask yourself, what do I love doing? What am I really good at? And then we should look out in the world and say, what aspect of this broken world burdens me the most. Ask what you're good at and what you're passionate about and how it matches with the problems and the brokenness of this world. For instance, you may may sense that you are gifted in hospitality, you enjoy hospitality, but you also see that the world is filled with a lot of college students at ASU who are lonely and away from their family. And so you decide to move to ASU and open up your home and say I'm going to have a home where people come and live and I'm going to extend hospitality and I'm going to give people a real sense of home away from home. Or maybe you love science. And you love reading about science, you love tinkering with things, you love science experiments, and you are passionate about science. But you also see pain and disease in the world. So you're going to you might conclude that you need to devote yourself to researching different diseases and thinking about what are ways that those can be alleviated. Or maybe you're really good at music and and you can pick up any instrument and you love music, but you see that there are people with developmental disabilities. And maybe you come to the conclusion that you should come work with my daughter or many of the other kids who have developmental disabilities and uh, do music therapy. See, we look at what God has given us a real joy for and made us really good at and match it with the needs of the world. Number three, there's a difference between employment and calling. Hear me out on this. There's a difference between employment and calling. The point here is don't go quit your job tomorrow. Please don't go quit your job. Because the thing is, we, calling and employment don't always match up. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But you have to stay faithful to the bills that, God is, uh, that you are committed to. You have to stay faithful to the families that God's given you and to provide those things. And we don't always get to work within our calling. It might be in the afternoons, in the weekends, in the evenings that we really get to work it out. And maybe we start putting together a plan of how we can move into more uh, an, an employment that overlaps with our calling but it takes time and it takes maturity and calling and employment don't always overlap. This was the experience of the Apostle Paul. His calling was clearly to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, but he had to spend a significant portion of his time actually making tents. And I think he probably made those tents pretty well and did a good and excellent job and it helped fund his ministry uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Number four, Start doing something and give it time. Don't sit in your living room and just wait for a voice from heaven to come and say, my, my child, I want you to go start frozen yogurt shops. Don't, it's not about just sitting around and waiting for the voice of God, but go out and start doing some stuff, learning about yourself, learning what you're good at and what you're not, and, uh, and give it time. It's not, calling doesn't come quickly we see that Moses was out in the desert for 40 years picking up sheep poop before he ever got to really enter his ministry. Joseph had a couple stints in jail before he was able to become the prime minister of Egypt. And I hope that you don't have to do some stints in jail before you sort out what your calling is, but that was Joseph's situation. And even Jesus didn't start his public ministry until he was 30. Sometimes it takes a long time period of time for us to grow and mature and be seasoned and, and, and those times are precious don't rush those times but while you're in those times and you're still figuring out what you're doing do some stuff, serve love others and start trying some things. Number five be a part of a community with other believers you need other people to speak into your life and to tell you what they sense you might be called to what you're good at, what your burdens are. The reality is, in community, when people really know Jesus and really know us, they often see us and understand us better than we do. Because we have been fed this kind of myth from the world that we are all, we are all exceptional, that we are all like superheroes who are going to go change the world and we could do whatever we want to if we just put our mind to it. That's a myth. I need people around me to come and say, Jim, as much as you try, you're not going to the NBA anytime soon. You might want to think about being a pastor or something like that. That's not your calling. But we we need to have people speak into our lives and and affirm areas of strength in our life and and what they see, to be a mirror to us. And this is really what Romans 12 is getting at. Uh, Verses 3 through 8. Let's just read those real quick. It says for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned It's important that we think accurately and soberly about how God has made us It goes on to talk about how we are made as a part of a body together It says for in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so he talks about how we are all parts of this body, that we we need all of us to function together. He goes on to talk about the different types of gifts that God gives, saying that the gifts differ according to the grace given to us, according to the gift that God gives to us. So let us use them if prophecy in proportion to, your, to our faith, in service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What this is saying is that God has given each of us gifts, and those gifts are to be used to serve others. We often, when we think about The gifts that God's given us, it can be a narcissistic exercise where we think that God gives us a particular gift for us to kind of hold and treasure and to admire ourselves with. The reality is God gives gifts through us, not necessarily to us. He gives them to us so that we can bless others. And I think it would be incredible. It would be awesome if we had a church that was filled with people who had a real sense of the way that God made them and they were getting to work doing those things. People knew that they were called to teach in lower income areas and were working hard in that. Certain people knew they were called to Tempe and were pouring themselves out for the city. Other people were headed out to China and to really pour themselves into that. Other people knew that they are an accountant and that they need to steward those things well. It would be great. It would be awesome. It would be a witness to the world if the world saw a church that really, uh, of people who knew what they were made for and were working hard at it. But you know what would even be more beautiful? Is if we didn't get self-absorbed and lost into ourselves but we cared about the callings of the other people in this room as much as we did our own. And we viewed our lives as as a support system to them, where our time, our money, our, our, our knowledge, our expertise, our ears, were lended to them to support them in the things that they're doing. See, the church... The church is the light to the nations. We're God's people that emit this light, that show who God is. But a lot of times when we think about us being lights, we think about it individualistically. We like to think that we're all these little candles that give off a little bit of light. But the reality is, we're like a flashlight. We're all different parts of a flashlight. Some are the battery, some are the bulb, but we all have our particular purpose, and without you and without others, in that, uh, in that flashlight, in your particular part, no light comes out. We need each other to show the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Gifts are not given to us, but through us. And finally, I want to close with this. You are not called to change the world, but you are called to be faithful to the one who does. See, we are not the saviors of the world, We are not the ones who change the world. We get to play a small part in the great and grandiose work of a huge God. Much of our confusion with calling comes from the fact that we believe this myth that all of us are going to go into the record books, that they're all going to write books about each one of us because we're all going to change the world. But the reality is, for most of us, we're gonna play a relatively small part and do a relatively small thing in a great and glorious mission that God is on. His mission to redeem all things, to make all things right, to rescue people and uh, reconcile them to himself. See, you may not be able to be the one who finds the cure for cancer, but you might. You might just get the opportunity to be an administrative assistant at a doctor's office, loving and caring for those patients as they come in, and as they're nervous to see the doctor and maybe hear the good news or the bad news, to care for those who are sick, and in that office to create a place of order, reflecting the God of order that helps that nurse and that doctor thrive. You might not find the cure for cancer, but that's the type of work, if done for the glory of God, that Jesus looks down on and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Maybe you're not going to be a world-renowned chef, a professor, or a financial advisor. But as a stay-at-home mom, you get to cook, teach, and manage the finances of the home. Now, maybe people aren't going to write a book about that. And, and, and talk about the work that you did, but you'll have some children who see the glory of God through that work. And you will be seen, even if no one else sees, you will be seen by a God who receives that as worship and one day says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You might not be able to change a nation or a city, but you might be the best neighbor they ever had on your street. Or maybe like my daughter, you might be like my daughter. My daughter is autistic. She's got some developmental disabilities and she may have a hard time finding a job one day. But let me tell you, that girl is passionate about animals. And any time you walk around and you see an animal, either a painting or an actual animal, she is gonna see and she loves it. She will not let an elephant or a giraffe or a meerkat go by without pointing it out and just getting fired up and loving it. Well, think about this. I think God delights in that. I think God created all of these interesting animals that are uh, incredible and they're made with such intricacy and we just overlook them in our day. But maybe he's called someone like my daughter to notice to notice the good things that God has created. And I think in that day, God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, at the end of our lives, our names will probably only be remembered for a few decades. 150 years from now, they will have probably forgotten about every single person in this room. Think about this for a moment. If we were to ask how many of us could name every one of the presidents of the United States, there would be only a handful of people here. The highest position in the U.S., and we have completely forgotten about them. If our goal is to make a great name for ourselves, it will be futile. We won't be remembered in a few hundred years, but there is a name worth living for. There is a name worth delighting in, and it's the name that went to the cross, that lived a perfect life, that went to the cross, that poured himself out for us and was resurrected, the name of Jesus, which was spoken 2,000 years ago, but we are still thinking and reflecting about that name and worshiping the one behind that name here today. And if he doesn't return in 2,000 years from now, they will still be worshiping him. There is a greater name worth devoting our lives to. And if we want to make a name for ourselves, it will be futile. But if we want to wrap our lives and to use our gifts in making famous the name of Jesus, that will endure forever. That precious name, that name of Jesus worthy of every aspect of our lives. Let's pray.